Today's scripture reading comes from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 20, verses 1-12. through 12. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Maonites, came against Jehoshaphat for the battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. This is the reading of God's word. Good to see everybody here today. Oh, you know, the weather is kind of Messed up. I'm, I'm coming back from last weekend uh, speaking at a retreat in the San Francisco area, um, the church that's in our denomination, our presbytery, and um, uh, I realized visiting the other churches all the time is that uh, we're a very special church. The people are there are so nice. Um, all the people are just all the same. They're all nice and the same and. You know, it's good to be back in church because I think we have some color, you know, um, personality-wise. Maybe not, not, not skin, right? Most of us, you know, yellow, but um, yeah, we have some color. And so for better or for worse, uh, I'm, I'm thankful for, for the church. Um, we have a lot to do today. I have to get to the servant. We have a congregation meeting after fellowship time. Uh, I know Jason just made an announcement that we do the fellowship in the fellowship or after fellowship, but um, it, it turns out we have actually a, a brief presentation on one, one of the ministries that the Mercy Ministry had done. And so a quick meal and, and time of fellowship, but we're going to actually come back here into this sanctuary to meet so that we could actually look at some slides, and um, uh, Pastor James will give us a quick update on that, and then um, we'll do that. It's an important time. We invite all members. You should be there. If you're not a member of the church, we invite you to participate by observing um, and seeing what's going on in the church, and, um, and I think we'll take it from there, okay? <clears throat> All right, let's look at this in First Chronicles chapter 20. Both First Chronicles and Second Chronicles, you know, there's only two, right, if you're in the Bible, uh, they're originally one book, and Chronicles focuses on King David, First Chronicles on King David, Second Chronicles focuses on King Solomon's reign, right? These are two famous kings in the history of Israel. A chronicle is simply an account of events that's arranged in a specific order. That's all it is. And this book was written about 100 years after First and Second Kings. You know that book in the Bible? They oftentimes parallel each other. 
And at this point in Israel's history, uh, in chapter 20, the empires of King David and Solomon, they're gone. They're, they're crumbled. The Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. The Babylonians destroyed the southern kingdom of Israel, right? So God's people at this point in time, uh, they're feeling the pain of, of being conquered as a nation. Exiled. They were exiled to foreign kings and foreign lands. And now that the exile had ended, <clears throat> what we see here in this period is that the Jews are now beginning to return to Jerusalem from Babylon, okay? The problem was Jerusalem is done. The temple is destroyed, and there is poverty for the people of Jews now. It was rampant, and so people struggled. And during this time then, what we have here in chapter 20 is during this reign, we have King Jehoshaphat, okay? Israel had many kings after David and Solomon, but here in chapter 20, we're looking at the reign of King Jehoshaphat. Three things I want us to see from this passage here is this. The problem in front of King Jehoshaphat in Judah or Israel, okay, that's the first thing we'll look at. The second thing we'll look at is the, the problem or the problems in front of us. Okay, first, what is the problem in front of Judah and, and King Jehoshaphat? Second, what are the problem or problems in front of us? And third, what can we do about it? All right? What can we do about it? So let's look at this very carefully. The problem in front of Judah and King Jehoshaphat, we find this in verses 9 through 12. Uh, actually, in verses 1 to 3, we see this in verse 1. The Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Munites, three different nations have gathered together, and they're about to take over and, and, and kick their butt. Right? That's what it is. Kick the nation of Judah or Israel's, you know, but, and so, Jehoshaphat hears this, and what does he do in verse 3? He says, he was afraid. He was afraid. Three armies against him, they're about to be demolished, okay? They just, they're poor. They don't have resources anymore. And here, all these nations now are ready to take over who they are and their land again. And the king response, all right, the king's response, Jehoshaphat, it says there in verse 3, he was afraid. He was scared. Israel had a lot of kings since David and Solomon. Some of them were pretty bad. A few of them were pretty good. And Jehoshaphat was one of the better ones, but he wasn't really that great. That's why when you read 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you don't really hear too much about him. But here, Chronicles focuses on him. Uh, he wasn't that great, but when you think of great kings, what do you think of? Right? You think of someone who's strong. You think of someone who can lead. You think of someone who could direct. You could think of someone who could conquer. Jehoshaphat was a nice king. He made some mistakes during his reign, but he still had good intentions. Uh, but he's not the typical expected leadership during this time. And, 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 you know, I can understand this because in his defense, he wasn't coming in during a good time for his nation. It was rough. They had no Hebrew king, but they had a Persian governor. There was no security for Jerusalem anymore, so they had to rebuild a wall. There's no more temple for them to worship in, so they have to reconstruct a, a, a pitiful semblance of another one. The Jews no longer dominated the, the region, but now they were on the defense all the time. They enjoyed very few divine blessings beyond the fact that they were able to return. They possessed little of the kingdom's former wealth, and God's divine presence no longer was with them in Jerusalem because it departed, all right? So there are a lot of obstacles that Jehoshaphat had to go through, problem after problem, 
And Jehoshaphat, to be honest, he was limited. And here in chapter 20 now, as he hears these three armies are ready to come in and take them over, it's a matter of life and death now. It's a huge problem in front of him. And what does he do? It says he's scared. The king is afraid. And so when you read verses 3 and 4, what does Jehoshaphat do? Three times the word seek comes out. He, begun, he begins to seek the Lord. And then he tells the nation, Judah, to seek the Lord, to seek him for help. This king prays. He starts to pray. He was afraid, and so he starts to pray. And it's a desperate prayer. Because when you read the end of his prayer in verse 12, in the end of our passage, what does he end with? He says this to God, we are powerless. And this great horde is coming against us. And this is what he says, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's the problem in front of King Jehoshaphat. How about the problems in front of us? Do you ever pray like this? Do you ever pray like this? Do you ever think like this? There's something that you're going through right now. There's something huge in front of you. You don't know what the future is going to hold, some difficulty, some predicament. You're faced with something that you have no control over, no solutions, no resources. You feel like there's no way out. And you know when you get like this, you know what happens? You start thinking in your head the what-ifs. The what-if questions, like, what if this doesn't turn out right? What if something worse happens? What if I lose this? And immediately the anxiety comes in, and the fear begins to creep in your heads and your hearts. Let me just share a few of my concerns, just my personal life, things I've realized over the years lately, but also over my sabbatical in the past three months. We live, or I live in my generation, we live in what we call a sandwich generation meaning that we're caught in between a period of our lives now where our parents are getting very old and, and some of them very sick, and our children are still there trying to get life and, and study and learn and grow forth. And so we're sort of in the middle as people because we, we need to take care of our parents. We're concerned for their health and well-being. But at the same time, we also need to take care of our children and, and being a good parent and worried about them just as much as well. And I'm always feeling that a little more as my parents get older. We're trying to get my parents to move up closer to me because, of course, they like me better than my brother or sister. Uh, but, you know, it, it's my dad's stubborn, and, and uh, he, he thinks once he comes up here he's, that, that his life is over, and so he wants his independence. He's 82. I don't know what they're going to do if they have an accident, so I'm always concerned. It's frustrating, right? My kids are getting older in college. I'm worried if they're going to find a job. I don't know if they're going to be self-sufficient. I told them, in two years from now, you're out of the house, okay? And I want them out, right? But I want them to really be independent. I don't know if that's going to happen or not. We'll see. But I'm concerned. Did you know that in the first three months of my, first month of my sabbatical, the first two weeks, I didn't know I would do this, but did you know, first two weeks, every night, I had a dream about the church. You, I had people, you guys, in my dream, every night for two weeks, and I couldn't figure it out. Why? I'm so relieved to get a break here. You know, I'm so thankful. But the first two weeks, every night, I am dreaming about people in the church. And you know what God told me in those dreams? He gave me the future of each and every person. I'm just kidding. No, he did not. 
<laughs> then I'd be weird, right? Cult leader. But anyways, uh, but what is the future of the church? 16 years. 16 years we've been in existence. 16 years I've been doing this. Another 10 years before this church. Where do we go from here? Where do I go from here? What do we do next? What's next? And these are things going through my head. Everyday kind of concerns. Everyday stuff. You go through these, right? And God forbid, then you have the unexpected things, the out-of-the-norm problems that come in right in front of you. What do you do? For some of you, maybe your job. Maybe you're worried that you're going to lose your job. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you're worried about finding a better job. You're not sure what's going to happen. Maybe you also have family problems. You know, you've got, you know, your, your in-laws, you've got your, your children, and you, you have the same issues as me. Maybe something's happened, and you're not sure how to handle it. Maybe health is a problem. Maybe your health is not too well. It's been something happening, but maybe you feel like it's getting worse. Or worse, maybe it's a loved one's health. Your finances might be tough. You're concerned about your future. You've got this huge problem in front of you. You're not sure what to do. And you know you've heard it. Well, you'll make it through. Don't worry. You'll make it through. But oftentimes, the make it through part is much, much later. And right now, it feels like the valley of the shadow of death. What do we do when we don't know what to do? When there's nothing you can do? Jehoshaphat prays. He prays. He says, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Okay? Let's look at what Jehoshaphat does, okay? The problem in front of him, the problems we have in front of us, whatever that is, but look at what, what do we do? Look at what Jehoshaphat does. He prays, okay? That's the first thing. He prays. He sought after God, and he called his people to seek God. You know, when you come to a point where you actually feel like you need to pray, you know that's a pretty desperate situation. But to pray like this requires humility. Humility means you've actually got to look to someone else for help. You see, my instinct is this. If I was Jehoshaphat, and I knew that these armies were coming for us, right, my initial response would be to do this, to start doing something, to survey the landscape, to get the armies all together, to kind of strategize, get all my professionals to come in, get all the troops to come in, and let's plan the best defense and offense that we can. That's instinct. That's what we would normally do. But what does Jehoshaphat do? He's the leader. He's the king, and kings are supposed to lead. They're supposed to know what to do. So what does Jehoshaphat king, what does he do? He prays, and he prays, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. You know, the picture I have of that, this image of not knowing what to do, but eyes are on God, it's like when growing up, how my dad punished me uh, so much, and uh, I think today it would be considered uh, child abuse, uh, but back then it was normal. And every time I didn't get an, an A on a paper, he would take me down to the basement, right? And we had this bunk bed, and on the top bunk there's this long piece of wood to keep the kid from falling off. He'd take that thing down, and he'd start swinging it. He'd start swinging it around, and sometimes, you know, he would hit me on the leg and whatever. When I knew that my dad was going to punish me, oh my gosh, I was desperate. He told me to go downstairs and wait for him. You know what I did? My eyes went to my mom. <laughs> you know that look? 
as you walk downstairs, as your dad's in front of you, you're looking for mom, right? Because mom is my savior during those times. And I would look at her. You know the eyes of that, that desperate look? My eyes are on her. Save me. Sometimes she would. And sometimes she wouldn't, right? But that's what I, I picture here when, when Jehoshaphat prays. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you, okay? It's desperate, and it's also humbling. It takes a kind of humility to ask for help and to pray, to pray. Humility means facing your limitations and leaning on your maker. That's why we pray, because we're confessing complete dependence on him. What do you do when the problem's in front of you? What did Jehoshaphat do? The first thing he does is pray with humility, okay? Now, some of you here are thinking to yourself, well, I can't be like this. I can't be humble, especially in my line of work, uh, because you can never show weakness in front of people. If you show weakness in front of people, they're going to run right over you, right? But let me tell you something right now. Humility, humbleness, is not the same as weakness. Rather, Christian humility is where we find our strength. Humility is the place where we access God's supply. You know, sometimes growing up with our children, we teach our children from a young age, we say things like, hey, you know what, you put your mind to anything, you can do anything you want. Maybe, but probably not, right? But the Apostle Paul, when you look at the Bible, says something similar to what we do as parents. In Philippians 4, what does he say? In verse 13, he says, I can do all things. I can do all things. But he continues and he says, through him who strengthens me. There is a difference between saying, I can do anything if I put my mind to it, and I can do anything through him who strengthens me. It's not weakness, but it's humility. In prayer, you're saying to God, only you can do something I can't, and maybe through me, you can make this happen. Okay? So he prays. Second thing we see here is this. When we have struggles, oftentimes this is how we pray. God, please, 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 please. God, please. God, please, please. Help me, help me. Stop, stop this. God, please. Right? That's pretty much the essence of our prayer. But I want you to say, see, there's something really carefully in his prayer. <clears throat> it's not just praying, okay? We all know we should probably do that, but look at how he prays. Uh, <clears throat> there are a couple things we learn from here that, that Jehoshaphat does in his prayer. First is this. In his prayer of humility and dependence on God, my eyes are on you, he remembers. He remembers. So when you look at verses 6 through 8, <clears throat> Jehoshaphat begins by calling to mind who God is. He says in verse 6, Are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms. In your hand is power and might. Nothing can stand you. In his prayer, he reminds himself who God is. And for him, he is the God of the sovereign God of the universe. And then in verse 7, he recalls in his prayer to God the fact that God gave Abraham the land. Abraham and his descendants, he says in verse 7, Did you not, God, drive out the inhabitants of the land before your people, Israel, and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? He remembers how God worked in Abraham's life and gave him all the land that was promised to them. And then in verse 9, he also remembers in history how King Solomon's prayer 
uh, was, was made, when God allowed him to build this temple, and in that prayer, God promises to hear prayers and to save them. That's why he says in verse 9, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you and cry out in, your affliction, in our affliction, and you will hear and save. Those are the words of King Solomon's prayer. You see what's going on? Look, in his prayer, he remembers, he remembers basically two things. Who God is and what he's already done. Two things. Who God is and what he's already done. In Jehoshaphat's prayer, he reminds not just God, but he reminds himself who God is to him and what he's already done for him. His prayer isn't just, oh, God, help me, help me, help me. Fix this, fix this, take this away, make this happen. But he remembers who God is and what he's already done. Let me ask you a question. Do you know who God is? Do you remember who God is, even in your prayers? For you, for you, personally, relationally, for you. Because you cannot pray like this if you don't know who he is. God is not a genie in the bottle. He's not Santa Claus in the sky to just listen and give whatever you need. Neither is he a concept or an idea or some philosophy. He's a person. Do you know him personally and relationally in your life? For Jehoshaphat, he knew him as the sovereign God of the universe. And if you know who he is, if you remember who he is in your life, especially in your prayers, especially in your time of struggle, who he is, then you've got to know. You've got to also remember what he's already done for you in the past. I know it's tough to figure out the problems that are in front of you, but if or when you come to God, have you ever stopped to think and look behind you of what God has already done with your life till now? How many things, how many trials, how many situations you've been through, how many people you've endured, whatever you've been through, and yet you've come out on the other side. How many blessings, how many good things that have come into your life, sometimes even through what looked like bad things in the moment. Do you remember? Spiritually speaking, you know what the number one command is in the Bible? Old Testament. The number one command that's repeated again and again in the Old Testament, remember. Over and over again, God keeps telling Israel, remember, remember, remember. Why? Because spiritually speaking, you and I, we have short-term memories. This is what happens. When we get past something, we immediately feel happy. We can immediately feel relieved, even thankful. But the problem, I think, is, is that we're not, just, we're not thankful enough because once that phase is done, it's now out of sight, out of mind, and we're going to jump to the next. What's next? What's next? How do I know? Because every time some new difficult thing happens again in your life or some old difficult thing happens again in your life, it's like back to square one. Where are you, God? Where are you? What's going on? I don't understand. What's going to happen? Where are you? 
My money is on the fact that each and every one of you have a testimony to the things God has done already in your life, whether you want to acknowledge that or not. And if you remember in your prayers who this God is for you and what he's already done for you, then guess what? That means that whatever you're praying for, whatever happens, you can trust him. You can trust him. When the next storm hits, you might still get confused. You might still be frustrated. You might even still be afraid. And you might still pray, Lord, I don't know what to do. But you can also still trust. My eyes are on you. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. I can still trust. Why? Because I know who you are, and I know what you've already done. Okay? It's not just praying. It's also remembering. But the, thing, the third thing we see here in, in Joshua's prayer and faith is this. He didn't just pray and remember and just say, hey, we're going to trust God and sit back. We're going to let go and let God. Have you ever heard of that? We're just going to let go and let God. Sometimes you have to do that. Sometimes you need to let go and just let God. But Jehoshaphat's faith in this prayer is not passive, it's active. That's not what's happening in this chapter. If you were to keep reading these verses from verse 13, you find all these active verbs. Verse 13, he stood before the Lord. Verse 16, God tells him, go down against them. Verse 17, stand firm, hold your position, go. Verse 20, Joshphet rose early in the morning. He went out, he took his position, so on and so on and so on. You see, Jehoshaphat prayed, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And while his eyes are on God, even though he wasn't sure what to do, he trusted God knows what he's doing, and so he faithfully obeyed. He continued to just live faithfully day to day, step by step, one step at a time, as God had commanded. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. The picture of that is this, the image of, you know, when you are trying to walk across a narrow beam and then the bottom is, is a depth that you're just afraid of and you are trying to just make it across, but the person across says, hey, look, don't look down, look at me. Don't look down, Look at me. And so you need to look at the person and take the next step, right? You can't look down. That, this is the picture I have. And that requires trust. You don't know, but you know the God who does. So be faithful. Take the next step one day at a time actively. It's an act of faith. Look, when faced with trouble, even what you think is insurmountable trouble, right in front of us. Usually what we want is, we want answers, we want solutions, we, we want the problem solved, we want it right here, right now, we, we want to make it stop, just make it end, that's what we want. Here's a question I want to ask you. In those hard moments that you're going through right now, during those times, what do you think God wants from you? We know what you want, what do you think God wants from you? And I think it's very simple. As you struggle, what he wants from us is faithfulness. 
Faithfulness as you wonder. Faithfulness as you question. Faithfulness even as you doubt. Faithfulness even as you go through this very difficult time. Why? Because this is why. There's something we need to be very careful of. There's a danger that we need to all be careful of. Someone once said this, quote, the eyes are the windows to the soul. Have you heard that phrase? Sometimes it's changed. The eyes are the windows to your heart. And by that phrase, what we mean is you can understand a person's emotions and feelings, even desires, through their eyes, by just looking into their eyes. That's what it usually means. And so I looked it up and see, well, who actually said that? I thought maybe that was from the Bible, but people aren't sure. Some people attribute that phrase, the eyes are the windows to the soul, to William Shakespeare, Leonardo da Vinci, maybe the philosopher Cicero, and also the Bible. So I wonder where they could have got that from the Bible. And in the Bible, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, Jesus talks about eyes. And this is what he says. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and you'll despise the other. The eyes in the Bible isn't the gateway to your soul. That's not how Jesus talked about it. But the way the Bible talks about eyes is this. Your eyes, in this sense, represent the focus of your life and what you are seeking. In other words, the way Jesus talks about eyes is what your eyes are fixated on What your eyes are fixated on will affect how you navigate life, whether in blessing or trouble. Israel had so many problems with their kings, but all of them failed, most of them failed, because of three things. One, personal sin. Two, false worship or idolatry. Or three, trusting in man rather than God. Personal sin false worship and idolatry, or trusting in man rather than God. Those three things were the downfall of every bad king in Israel. But those three things are something that I struggle with. Those three things are something we all struggle with. My personal desires, when it rises up to a level where it's more than God, and I have my eyes on what I want, it turns into sin oftentimes. I do the thing I shouldn't. When my eyes are fixated on the thing that I think will make me happy, fulfill me, give me life, that's what I live for. That's what I really worship. And if that's anything other than God, that's called idolatry. If you care more about what people say than what God says, if you care more about what people think than what God thinks, if you care about pleasing people more than God, if you trust in people more than God, not only will you be inevitably disappointed and disillusioned, but it means that your eyes are on man and not on him. The danger here is that in each and every case, whether it's my personal sin or my idolatry or other people, if my eyes, the lamp of my body, as Jesus says, are only on those things, then especially in times of trouble, 
Those are the things I will gravitate to when I'm in trouble. And as I gravitate to them, they will take me further away from him. When you're like this, you will not care about God. In fact, you might be even tempted to think wrong thoughts about him. And you're in danger then of losing your faith. Your faith is at stake. And this is why faithfulness in the face of problems and fears and worries and hardships, even troubles, is what God wants from you. Remember who he is. Remember what he's done. Who is this God? Well, he's the sovereign Lord of the universe, as Jehoshaphat says, but he's also your father who cares for you. How do I know this? Well, what has he done for you in the past? He gave you his only son to live a life that we should have lived, to die a death that you and I deserve to die. And Paul says in Romans 8, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son gave him up for us all. How will he not give you all things graciously that you need? So what did King Jehoshaphat do when he felt like he didn't know what to do? His eyes were on him. What do we do in the midst of situations that feel like there's no clear solution, there's ambiguity, there's there's fear? What do we do? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, what does it say? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorned his shame, sat down at the right hand of God. Fix your eyes now on Jesus. Now what does that mean? Verse 1 of Hebrews 12. Throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and run this race with perseverance as you fix your eyes on Jesus. Do you see that? 1996, and I know I'm dating myself, but there was this famous but now deceased rapper, Tupac, who put out an album, and along with the album, a famous song. Do you remember what it is? Does anyone remember what that was? It was entitled, All Eyes on Me. And he had a song that went top number one. The album, some people say, was probably one of the best hip-hop solo artist album of ever. All eyes on me. Seven months later, we know this, he's fatally wounded in a drive-by shooting, and he's gone. You see, as great as an artist as he might have been, he only wanted to say what only God has the right to say. And Jehoshaphat knew, and, and we should know, that in the midst of our ups and downs of our life, whatever it is, it's God who gets to say to us, all eyes on me. All eyes on me. Let me end with this question. Where are your eyes focused on these days? What are you constantly gazing on these days? What what are you focused on? What are you looking at? What are you seeking? Are they seeking God? Are they looking after him? Are they fixated on him? 
or is it something else? And so I pray. Not that I know everyone's struggles and, and what the answers are and what we need to do, but I pray, when we pray, that we can pray the same. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Let's pray. Father, we pray, we pray. Many of us, we probably need to confess that really the only time we pray is when we really are desperate and in need of something from you. And after that, Lord, we, we feel like everything's good and we have everything under control and we forget. I pray through Second Chronicles chapter 20, you remind us as Jehoshaphat prayed uh, that we also, as we pray, would always remember who you are and what you've done. I pray that humility comes into our lives to not just depend on our own strength, but to look to you, the source of strength, so that we could say like Paul, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I pray, Lord, that we don't just sit back as we look to you, but, Lord, we actively, daily, faithfully try, day to day, live out the things that you've given to us already to be faithful to, to obey you in all circumstances. And though we don't know what the future may hold, only you do. Nevertheless, step by step, you call us to put our eyes on you and walk. And I pray, God, that whatever things get in the way of our vision, that you, O oh Lord, would open our eyes through trial and tribulation to realign my sight and my heart with you so that we may finish the race as we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, knowing that one day all things will become clear. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.